Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. We are live on the Conversations That Matter podcast. I hope everyone can hear me all right. If you can't, leave a comment uh, in the chat section there. I think everything's working uh, properly, though. And we have a lot of uh, things to talk about today. One main topic in particular, which is what's going on in France and how this relates to evangelical leaders and their teaching on the topic of immigration, migration, refugees, all of that. Uh, not comprehensive, but I think illustrative of what has gone wrong, really, in the last uh, few years, the last decade, really, in evangelical circles. Um, I, I've certainly touched on aspects of what I'm about to say today in other podcasts and emphasize different things. But uh, I just think that this particular situation in France is uh, an opportunity to highlight once again how we seem to lack a biblically informed, but it's more than that. It's just a, uh, it, 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 it's, it's one thing to be biblically informed, which is what we need, but th there's something else beyond that, something, something that's so fundamental to who people ought to be, to, to act within their own self-interest. I'm not talking about selfishness in a negative sense, but just uh, preserving what is theirs, preserving the identity of their people, the uh, of their family, of um, the uh, safety of their children, the, the things that are natural to fathers and mothers and people in society in general. If you're connected to other people, you just whether you're Christian or not, there are certain things that God has wired into creation, right? And 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 this is what I think evangelicals have been struggling against now for years. And so, um, so anyway, I, I want to talk about one area where I think they've been struggling for some reason, and that's on this area of uh, immigration, migration, refugee crises, all of that. Uh, so um, to, to get started, I want to take us all on a trip down memory lane. Can we do that? Can we go down memory lane? I want to take you back to 2015 and 16 for just one brief moment and show you what was going on at that time. Let's roll the video here. One thing that Christians, especially evangelicals, might want to keep in mind is that the word refugee was first applied to those who were fleeing the Catholic government in France that had ordered the execution of Protestants. Christians in general, and evangelicals particularly, should keep in mind that the very word refugee goes back to the year 1685 when French Protestants were fleeing the very real danger of oppression and death under Catholic authorities in France. Many of those first called refugees were Protestant evangelicals trying to get out of France into cities such as Geneva, and that's the tie to church history. 
right now I think a lot of a lot of Americans in general, but this certainly applies to many Christians, they hear refugee and they think uh, Middle Eastern, Muslim, male, maybe terrorist. I mean, that's, that's what mm-hmm. we've been trained by some politicians to think when we hear about refugees. There's all sorts of reasons that's not a, a fair stereotype. I and mean, most of the refugees who've been resettled to the United States are not from the Middle East. Uh, 40% of those who are from the Middle East are Christians, so it's slightly majority Muslim, but a lot of religious mm-hmm. minorities as well. Um, but more importantly, we're thinking about this as a political issue. And I think most Christians, and again, we have data for this. LifeWay Research did some really, really helpful um, polling on this a couple of years ago on biblical, on Christians' views of, of immigrants and immigration. Only 12% of evangelical Christians in the United States said that their views of refugees and other immigrants are primarily influenced by the Bible. I fear that most people in our churches and maybe even in this room are paying little to no attention to this crisis. Or if we are paying attention to it, we're looking at it through the lens of political punditry. Endless debates about whether or not we should allow refugees into our country. It is a sure sign of American self-centeredness that we would take the suffering of 13 million people and then turn it into an issue that's all about us. But what's so disheartening is not the response of our culture, it's the response of the church, or lack thereof. For the majority of the church here, there is little to no response to be seen. And then if there is any response, it seems to be coming from a foundation of fear, not of faith, flowing from a view of the world that is far more American than it is biblical, far more concerned with the preservation of our country than it is the accomplishment of the Great Commission. Well, there you have it. You have uh, Al Mohler first, and uh, Al Mohler, probably the more sensible one in this particular montage, if you listen to his whole briefing uh, from that particular date. Uh, but yet, there is this attitude, and it it pervades. I, I remember at the time, I was alive, and I was paying attention. It pervaded the evangelical landscape uh, that we ought to somehow empathize in a way in which uh, the way that actually Al Mohler described there, that uh, these are all legitimate cases, essentially, or at least the vast majority of them are. And so it is good to allow uh, these people fleeing these war-torn areas, and, and of course prompted by the Arab Spring, which you really want to trace it back to some of Obama's meddling in the Middle East, but we don't, we won't do that. Um, but uh, some, some of the, um, not, not just in Syria, but in other parts of the Middle East and even in Africa, uh, all the bad economies, war-torn areas, uh, all the, the violence, all, the result of all of this is, of course, if you're in those areas, you want to move. You want to get out of those areas. You want to seek a place where there's opportunity. But the understanding was that uh, the assumption was they're going to be just like, hey, us, <laughs> Christians. We Many of us came from a tradition in which we were refugees. The Huguenots were refugees and the Baptists at least uh, the, the the Puritans and um, and and some Baptists uh, ended up having to flee religious persecution themselves, and the Scottish Covenanters. And um, it, th- this is the same thing. This is the same thing. That's the 
and, and that's the best case scenario. Of course, uh, often it was coupled with what you just heard from David Platt. And of course, that was a representative also from uh, World, I think it was World Vision on Phil Vischer's podcast. And uh, David Platt, you heard basically guilting Christians, saying he's so disappointed, really wagging his finger at Christians that they are not uh, as biblical as they should be on this, that they're not thinking like a Christian would think about the refugee situation. They're thinking about it politically. And this was a bad category. You shouldn't think about it politically. Uh, the same thing uh, on the Phil Vischer podcast. It's that you know, Christians aren't thinking biblically about this. And there's this complaint that if they were to think biblically, they it would lead to this heart of compassion and empathy. And that would in turn say, open up the door, let them come on in. Okay. Now, two things can be true at once. Uh, one, the first thing that can be true is we can welcome in refugees. Uh, th there's, there's no biblical injunction against doing that. In fact, there are examples in scripture uh, on sojourners and strangers in the land of treating them with justice. Um, it's, it's not like it's against the Bible to do that, right? It's not against the Bible to welcome someone into your house if you want to adopt someone. In fact, we could see positive examples of this in scripture. We could see that that's an opportunity to exercise the love of Christ. But there is a scale problem. What if someone came to you and said, how about you adopt 20 children that are not your own into your home? And you say, I don't have the money for that. And where are these kids coming from? You know, some of them are teenagers, let's say. And uh, you, you don't even have a background check. You don't even know exactly who they are. And at that rate, I mean, if you've taken that many people and let's say they have similarity they're all they all share the same religion or the same ethnicity or something or language and you don't even speak their language how do you think that's going to go for your house right in order to love your family to love the people that are in your household you actually have to put barriers up this is why we have doors and windows <laughs> and they can close uh, it's not because we are unwelcoming uh, it's because we want to be welcoming and we know we don't have the capacity to welcome if the ship is sinking and taking on too much water. I mean, this is common sense stuff, but uh, but but that's where we were in 2015. Um, there's so many more examples. I actually had a bunch of Russell Moore articles queued up, and I just can't do it. They're they're just too they're too inane. They're too. It's just it's Russell Moore, and it's annoying. Uh, one of them, though, I will just say for the Washington Post, he had wrote, he wrote an art co-wrote an article predicting in 2015 that uh, the anti-immigrant. Uh, evangelicals would not basically win, that they're not going. It's a, it's a losing strategy. Of course, Trump won. Uh, and so uh, Russell Moore has been wrong on this in more ways than uh, one. But I want to bring to your attention also Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I went. I have my MDivs from there. And uh, he said this. He said a bunch of things. I just put uh, four of them uh, that are representative in order here. Uh, popular Georgia evangelical pastor criticizes anti-refugee politics. Thank you, Bryant White, uh, or right, anti-refugee politics. That's a problem, and it tar we, we targeted that. But that was such a horrible thing. Uh, whatever that is, right? Danny Aiken, uh, again, how America's rejection of Jews fleeing Nazi Germany haunts our refugee policy today from Vox. Uh, and then he goes, not again, Lord. So, he, so he's taking this Vox.com, this liberal outlet, which, okay, it's fine to post from a liberal, liberal outlet, but... Uh, but uh, of course, this is this is going to be um, from their perspective on this particular situation, drawing the parallels they want you to draw. And he's taking this example of not welcoming in enough Jewish 
refugees. And by the way, there were Jewish refugees who were, were welcomed in. You, you'd think, given the narrative out there, that like no refugees were ever welcomed in. There were some. Um, basically, the policy at that point was families had to adopt. Uh, there, there had to be a, an economic safety net for Jewish refugees who were coming to the United States. And if they couldn't get enough people to sponsor them, then, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to take in as many as uh, perhaps uh, they should have or uh, they could have. And so anyway, he's drawing this parallel. He has um, this. He says Southern Baptists vote to support refugee resettlement after Trump says to ban all Muslim immigration. And of course, that's a mischaracterization of what Trump said. Trump was trying to ban immigration from certain Muslim countries that had problems with terrorism where we could not vet the refugees. That was always the issue. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, taking the liberal narrative and running with it was what many evangelical authors and influencers did. Um, and then you have Danny Aiken saying the refugee and immigration crisis this is in 2016 is not a national issue for me. It is a gospel issue. So there you have it. It's a gospel issue. God's people should be the most gracious and open of all. So um, if you think about it in political terms, you're shamed. Uh, you're not supposed to think about it in those terms. That's wrong. Uh, if you think about the well-being of your country, the identity of your country, the economics of your country, uh, the future for your children, if you think in any of those ways, that's getting your sight off the gospel, which is where your focus is supposed to be. And of course, it, it goes without saying that if refugees come into your country, I, I think I, I interrupted myself because I was going to say there's two ways, two things that we have to realize that can be true at once. So I'll, I'm returning to that now. Uh, you can welcome the refugees who come in and, and through no option of your own, let's say. Maybe you're even against it. You don't think your little town in the middle of Nebraska should be flooded with refugees or something. Uh, but you didn't have a say in it. And here they are. What do you need to do? Well, of course, you need to to love them in, in tangible ways. There, that goes without saying, really. Um, but uh, it does not mean that you risk your family's safety, right? It does not mean that you vote for policies that endanger your family or your community. Um, it, it doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean on a personal level, we can do two things at once. That's the one thing we can do. And we can do this other thing as well. We can, we can help uh, the, the people who are coming in who have needs. Uh, and we can also make sure that we are protecting our own. And, and the two are not mutually exclusive, uh, exclusive, but they were pitted against each other in 2016, in 2017, all the way up really to about 2020. And I've noticed since 2020, there's been remarkable silence. Now, you have what happened in Ukraine. Evangelical leaders kind of got involved in that. But there's a reluctance among the evangelical elites to get too involved in these topics. Uh, and, and they have right now, they have not much to say, not much to say about what's going on in France. Um, could it be that they realize that they their narrative has been way off for years and it, this is the result? I don't know. I don't know. But I, I think I, I'm speaking about leadership on Sunday at a men's lunch thing. And one of the things about leaders is, if you're a good leader, you are you own up to your mistakes. When you're wrong, you don't have a problem admitting that you're wrong. You don't have a, a problem course correcting after you admit. Um, we don't have that. <laughs> we don't have leaders like that in evangelicalism. Uh, I can't think of any like like as far as I mean, I, I can think of like Bodie Bauckham, right? And John MacArthur. And I can think of people who are that, you know, the few people that we have talked about on this pro program that uh, do occupy a certain platform. But, you know, as far as those who actually run institutions like it's hardly any uh they tend to be people who they make mistakes maybe they'll course correct without apologizing but hardly ever do they even course correct 
And this is an opportunity, I would like to suggest. We have an opportunity right in front of us with what just happened in France. Um, and, that, and, and that's where I want to go next. I want to bring to your attention, um, I, I want to think through this biblically, of course, but I want to bring to your attention what's happening uh, in France and, and just give you a, a brief sketch of that because it truly is devastating. It really is. Uh, so here's um, an article. I have a few articles queued up on this. Uh, for those who don't know, I think most of us probably in this audience, I get the sense many of you are informed, but uh, for those who, who aren't, here is the Associated Press World News. Uh, this is on July 1st. M mourners bury slain teen in France as 45,000 police are deployed and fifth night of unrest is quieter. So by this point, things had started to quiet down, but uh, there's a massive mobilization. Um, the night's arrest total the night before, 427 people. Um, some 2,800 people have been arrested overall since the teen's death on Tuesday. So this is on July 1st. Um, you have since then, this is uh, July 6th, so this was yesterday. The president of France says France needs to address the causes of unrest prompted by police killing of teens. So here's, they had all this, this unrest. And, and of course, maybe I should actually uh, show you a different article first. I'm getting a pop-up now. What is this? Okay, my system is now slowing down, and I am not sure. I'm not sure what's going on here. Um, well, <laughs> I lost a bunch of stuff here. Uh, all right, well, well, we'll we'll go here, I guess. Um, more than 600 arrested, 249 law enforcement officers injured during third night of France protests. This is from June 30th, so before that, uh, and and of course, there's a picture here of the French flag. You have two people in black masks. And then uh, burning uh, inferno behind them on a building. Uh, it gives some reports of the damage. Uh, and then you have the Atlantic. These are liberal uh, columns, liberal um, outlets that are recognizing, hey, in France, there's a problem with protests. There's a nihilistic protest is becoming the norm. It's a problem. France is a problem. But where are they pitting the blame? Where are they pitting the blame? In this particular article, um, I believe it was this one from the Epoch Times. No, it's this one. Sorry, it's one, one from the AP. I'm getting it mixed up now. Uh, it quotes in this article, the mother of the, the victim of, uh, I, the alleged victim of this, um, sh police shooting at a traffic stop. Uh, I don't even know all the details of this. Um, but, uh, there's a video that showed two officers at the window of a car, one with a gun pointed at the driver as a teenager pulled for the officer fired once through the windshield this week, uh, Nahel, that's the name of the teenager, uh, Nahel's mother told France five television, uh, this. She was angry at the officer who shot her son, but not the police in general. And she says he saw a little Arab looking kid. He wanted to take his life, she said. OK, that's great. You're you are uh, you're not angry at the police in general, but you're you're just going to assume the motives here that he just saw an Arab looking kid and wanted to take his life. Do you think that the people in France saw what happened here in the United States in 2020? Do you think they learned from that? Oh, I think they did. I think they definitely did. In fact, in this article. Um, it talks about uh, the disparities in France and um, and and how that's it's a problem. I mean, it, it's it's linking it to the George Floyd stuff, and it's saying there's something wrong in France. It, it's the French it's French culture. It's French policing. It's these kinds of things. Uh, you have um, this article from the Atlantic. I want to just bring you to this this one paragraph. The spirit of rebellion can only exist in a society where theoretical equality conceals great factual inequalities. 
Um, the problem of rebellion, therefore, has no meaning except within our own Western society. Almost nowhere in the West is the equality among citizens articulated more forthrightly or consistently than in France. The United States may be the only exception. This might explain why, even though France's social safety net is far more generous than in Italy, Germany, and United Kingdom, so mark that in your mind, they have a more generous safety net, uh, and other wealthy, diversifying European nations, malaise and overt fury, the indiscriminate violence that is always ready to erupt, even as a society becomes more measurably less discriminatory, remain far more persistent here. Nor can the gap between beautiful philosophical promises and the granular disappointments of empirical reality be discounted entirely in any consideration of the spate of homegrown terrorism that marred the mid-2010s. Listen to this. When more citizens of France than any other Western nation went off to fight the Islamic State and the group sympathizers carried out a series of horrific massacres within France itself. So th what's the narrative here? Well, France has been at war with the... Uh, yeah, they sure they have a great safety net, but there's there's this problem in France. You know, they had more uh, people from France, more citizens from France go off to fight the Islamic State than any anywhere else. So, yeah, sure, maybe they're making progress, but uh, but there's this disparity that exists there. there and, and, and this is part of the point that um, I, I don't know. I've made many times. Many people who are more conservative in their thinking have made many times is that the the cries of outrage that uh we hear from the social justice side that there's these disparities, that there's these discrimination, the police are terrible, all of that. It, you can never actually satisfy these people. How do you know that John? Well, let me bring you back to, uh, to, to this slideshow here. Here's the net migration in France, right? The, the quotes that I was showing you from 2015 and 2016, you, you can see, uh, you, you had in 2014 or 2015 rather, uh, over 40,000, yeah, 40,000 um, refugees come to France or, or migrants, or however you want to classify them. And then in 2016, 65,000, according to this chart, at least. Um, what happens in 2017, 2018? It spikes. It's 155,000 2017, 201,000 200, uh, 2018. Uh, it, it just keeps increasing, increasing, increasing. And you've had for the last you know, three years in a row from 2020 to 2022, 161,000 people a year being imported into the country uh, or, or coming to the country and living there now. Um, do you think that's going to make a difference? Do you think that's going to make a difference? And yet you have articles like this from mainstream news outlets, the data that tells the story of racism in France, understanding the true <laughs> seal of, uh, of racial inequality and its impact is not easy. So what can we glean from the figures we have? So it's never enough. You can be the most generous country. In fact, France took in um, the only country that took in more refugees from 2015 to 2017 during the supposed crisis. The crisis never seems to have ended, I guess, um, was Germany. Uh, France was second. So th th this is I mean, they've been they've, they've rolled out the red carpet and this is what they get in return. Uh, th that's truly amazing to me. Honestly, it, it, it's it's incredible to me. And I mean, you think about your personal life. Think about any example of generosity from your personal life. If you have friends that let's say you have a friend who just shares. We all probably have friends like that. who just shares the shirt off their back. I mean, they are they are giving, giving, giving. And yet, let's say they're constantly being criticized for not giving enough. 
It's what, no matter how much they give, it is never enough. And the people they're giving to are people who, uh, from their countries, they're, 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 they're less that way, or they're dysfunctional. They're not, they don't have the means to give because of whatever cause that might be, um, maybe even irresponsible causes, but yet the, all the eyeballs, all the attention, all the pointing of fingers is at the responsible friend. And, and that's what it seems like is happening in the West. You have these countries that for centuries have been at least comparatively fairly responsible. Yeah, there's been world wars. Yeah, there's been diseases. There's been all kinds of horrible things, effects of sin. It happens. Uh, that's the world we live in. But in general, uh, they have uh, the, the people in these populations have been they've been influenced by Christianity and they've been, um, I think, as a result of that, primarily very responsible people. Uh, and uh, and I'm talking about in comparison with the rest of the world. Uh, doesn't mean that they're better. Doesn't mean they're genetically superior. Doesn't mean anything like that. Uh, it just means that they happen to be in countries that have been up until recently fairly responsible countries, taking care of uh, their own. Um, and, and some of them have, have started to use, you know, socialistic mechanisms to do that and so forth. But uh, they've they've held it together somewhat. Okay, they're not in the destitute poverty of a third world country, and yet. They are now forced because of that prosperity uh, to now be the, the the whipping boy. Really, they they are the whipping boy uh, for all the the maladies of the rest of the world because it's because they're not giving enough because they're not generous enough because they don't let enough people in because uh, they fight uh, in these other countries counterterrorism because whatever it is there's bigotry there's what whatever it is they they can do the most the, the nicest things in the mind in from from a leftist standpoint and of course france being controlled by again leftists progressives uh it's never enough it's just never enough so the best thing to do is just never to even accept that paradigm don't even play the game it's just not worth it on a national level just don't don't even get involved with that it, it's not the question should be can we help people will and and, and what will the impact be if we help them to our our, our we, we need to weigh that we need to weigh that uh, and, and that goes for every country. Um, we can uh, we can do a lot. By the way, I, I, I'll, I'll just take the opportunity now to plug uh, equipping the persecuted um, because we can do a lot with people who are already in the country. Um, you know, I, I think honestly, this is just my opinion on immigration and so forth. But I, I do think that uh, if we're going to allow migrants or refugees to come to the United States from anywhere, it makes the most sense for them to come from generally Christian areas. Uh, you, you think of the refugees in South Africa. You think of the refugees uh, in um, places like Nigeria, where they're they are being persecuted. Uh, they are being, um, some would say, genocided. And they have something in common, at least traditionally, with what America was. <laughs> and they would fit in much better with American uh, American understandings uh, being, sharing a faith already. Uh, and it, not saying every Christian American is a Christian. I'm just saying that there's a cultural veneer of Christianity, a default setting that they already kind of have, but yet we tend to not focus on those countries. We tend to, as a matter of policy, uh, we, we tend to bring in a lot of people from the, um, Islamic world. And of course, uh, from across our Southern border, um, just saying, it's just interesting, the priorities there. But, um, the, the point I wanted to make by bringing this up is, you can support this ministry if you want, but what this is a matter of sending people to that country with resources, with food, 
with uh, walkie-talkies and body armor and all the rest. In fact, I have in front of me right now, I have an article, um, and you can get on the Equipping the Persecuted website and sign up for this uh, email list from Judd Saul, the founder of Equipping the Persecuted. And he says in the article, he says, um, he writes with a heavy heart. Uh, just days ago, he says, I returned from a trip to Nigeria where they have been devastated by relentless attacks, particularly in areas around Jos and Southern Plateau State. The toll of these vicious attacks is now over 1,000 innocent lives since May 16th, 2023. The gravity of the situation is heartbreaking and our mission on the ground is growing ever more critical. Uh, he gives a story about um, a woman there and her 15-year-old daughter who, uh, ran, during an attack, I guess, ran to a car for shelter. Everyone in and around the car is struck down in a hail of bullets except uh, except the, the mother. And she lay among, um, uh, I guess, I guess her daughter died. In, in this particular attack. I mean, it's, just, it's sad. These stories are coming out all, all the time. So, you know, what, what can we do as uh, brothers and sisters in the United States? Well, um, of course you can go over there if you want, you can, you can volunteer, uh, you can uh, give your money to equipping the persecuted and they'll do that kind of a thing. Uh, but you know, it, it's, if we were going to have a conversation about, um, having, I, th I think there probably maybe should be a conversation about Nigerian refugees if we're having a conversation about refugees and migrants from other places. But even with Nigerian refugees who I am supportive of, who I uh, want to see helped, who I, my I heart, my heart breaks, I want to see that them prosper in their country. I mean, that's the goal in my mind. Um, I don't, to, to disrupt their lives uh, in, in mass to bring them all to the United States and then to overwhelm communities that might not have the resources to handle them. Um, that may not be the right way. Maybe the right way thing to do in this case is, and, and again, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because that's a reasonable discussion to have. I, notice what I'm not doing. I'm not shaming people who would say, you know what, my country, my, my community is a thousand people and I can't afford to have another thousand just dumped here, which has happened in certain middle America communities. Uh, that's a reasonable discussion uh, to have. So anyway, I want to transition here. I want to um, show you, this is a, an article from, let's see, let's see here. Hold on. If I can pull it up here. Okay. Um, I have an article that I wrote back in, 2015 during this whole uh, migrant crisis and I'm having trouble finding it now I don't know what happened to my computer I, I had everything queued up and then I went to record and it's like something goofed okay here it is I pulled it up so how do we think about this biblically how do we and, and I wanted to bring to your attention an article that I put out there uh, during the initial um, Syrian refugee crisis but it was more than just Syria and I think you know, in part, France is paying for this now for for all the, the the support that evangelicals were giving to this and all the, the leftists in Hollywood who were going over there. Th this has not been a good thing for France. Is it loving your neighbor? Is it loving your neighbor to welcome in that amount of people uh, and who don't share your religion, who don't share the values of your country, who are just foreign? But in those great uh, in, in that great of a number, it's hard to assimilate. And that's where the problem starts coming in. So here's the article I wrote. This is from uh, November 19th, 2015. And we make a full circle here back to France. 
Um, I said, and my writing wasn't as good then. This is what I said. I would encourage my brothers and sisters who in their haste to be compassionate to alleged refugees in the wake of the Paris attacks. But remember that there were attacks in 2015 in Paris. Uh, I think hundreds of people died and, and, and ISIS took credit for them. Um, in part carried out by refugees, uh, um, I have decided to quote verses about loving one's neighbor and being kind to sojourners. So I'm acknowledging what you just saw, but also people in my own personal life who are saying this kind of thing on social media. I do not doubt your heart or your sincerity, but your understanding I do. I have humbly listened to your arguments and pleas for compassion and will continue to, but I would like you to think through some things yourself. Some things I wonder whether you've thought of as deeply as you need to in order to address the issue. Please accept the humble questions of a sinner far worse than you, but one who worships the same God. These are not meant to provoke, but to prod you to come to your own, hopefully more informed conclusion. And I remember there was uh, one person in particular in my social group who was angry about some of my posts. And I think it was with that in mind, I might have written this because I, I was just like, let, let me just look. Let, let's have a conversation, not let's just spew ideology at each other. Let's actually have a reasonable conversation about this. And I, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I have all the answers, right? But are we even asking the right questions? Is the question really, uh, it's a gospel issue, you know, therefore we must. And uh, how um, the only question is, uh, how, how do we go about welcoming them <laughs> in, in a political sense and, 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 and undermining, I guess, a political category with a spiritual category? Uh, th that was like the only way Christians could think about it at the time, it seems, at least uh, uh, in the more elite circles. Have you examined, this is the first question I have, have you, have you examined the full counsel of God when it comes to immigration? I would start by meditating on Exodus 12, 48 and asking yourself how this would fit into your stance on immigration. It says, but if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and let them uh, let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native to the, of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. Apparently, God ha does have a standard of at least some kind of assimilation, i.e. being a native. While I do have my own ideas as to how this applies to our modern American context, I'll leave you to figure out what you believe. Many Christians have been touting Leviticus 19, 33 through 34, which talks about the way Israel is supposed to treat the sojourner. I would ask those quoting this verse what they think the term sojourner, a stranger with you, uh, with you who sojourns, means. And if it has in mind a group of people almost 7,000 miles away imported by the U.S. in order to become U.S. citizens. Now, of course, I'm writing about the United States. France is closer, but you could apply this to France. Also, is this passage prescribing a policy of unlimited immigration or simply instructing the people of God in how to treat sojourners regardless of the circumstance? Again, I have my own idea, but I'll let you form yours. Please meditate on Joshua 23, 7 through 13, and see if God's prohibitions against Israel marrying, worshiping, or mixing with the nations around them have any bearing on your immigration stance. Does God allow the stranger, the member of a false religion, to have the same privileges as Israelites and or to live among them in all circumstances? Now, some of you might say, John, that doesn't apply. We're in 2023, and to, the, to you, I would say, remember who I'm writing to. I'm writing to people who want to take these passages from the Old Testament and just directly apply them, plug and play. Uh, it says, welcome the sojourner. Therefore, our policy should be welcome. Get, get as many of those refugees in here as possible. That's what I'm responding to primarily. Uh, second question, do the government and the church have the same responsibility? If a Christian believes, as Romans 13 suggests, that governments are instituted for protecting citizens, including from possible terrorists in a group of people uh, impossible to fully vet. And that's one of the problems here. They, it wasn't possible. 
uh, but th that the church is required to assist and support immigrants no matter what the circumstance, why call them out for hypocrisy? Perhaps they have a more biblically informed understanding of the spheres of responsibility God gives to different institutions. This is no different than a Christian who believes providing for his own children is required, but doesn't believe the pastor of his church should be required to do so. Uh, just because we are as a church uh, are required to feed and provide for all we can doesn't mean those responsible for protecting us have the same responsibility, does it? Perhaps their concerns are in a different department and protecting U.S. citizens is what God requires of them instead of taking from U.S. citizens in order to feed and protect those who could pose a threat to the ones they actually are accountable for. So I'm trying to bring the focus back to also, hey, whose money's paying for this? Remember that. Do you know who the alleged Syrian refugees are? I ask this because it would seem to me that many jumping on the compassionate bandwagon have not been paying attention to the sociopolitical situation until now based on their remarks. If we are going to be compassionate, let's be compassionate towards kids bullied and girls raped in Germany. The victims of the Paris attacks and our own American troops who seem more willing to spill their blood for Syria than four, four million uh, than the four million so far who have evacuated instead of fighting. If you would watch the video in the link and I have a video there uh, below and ask yourself if you still feel the same about allowing alleged refugees to this country. And it was uh, a Breitbart uh, migrant video about the situation. It's not kind of a documentary, I think. Um, is it compassionate? Next question. To put the lives of U.S. citizens in danger in order to make the lives of immigrants better. Uh, and I ask a, a question here. I said, if you're a family in debt over $137,000, and at the time, I guess that was the, <laughs> I think I looked up, what's the national debt per person? I'm sure it's more now. Uh, is it compassionate for you to invite 20 people without jobs you don't know from the ghetto, mostly comprised of young adult males, to live in the room next to your daughters? <laughs> I tried to put it in those, uh, those terms. Um, nothing wrong with have taken in someone from the ghetto. But again, it, all the circumstances of here have to be weighed. If your heart is drawn to help Syrians, why not become a missionary yourself? Why not invite them into your home to live with you? If it meant seriously changing your lifestyle, I wonder if you would still harbor the same. So I, so I go through that. Basically, what would you do? First uh, John 317 is clear about our responsibility. Um, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? They've uh, been in need for a long time. I'd like to ask you a final question. So, so I'm talking about that. Hey, there's Christians also that we need to um, think about here, too. Um, our country won't take the, these Christians in, but others will. Will you? And, and so I asked if they would consider giving to uh, a fund that helped Christians in these war-torn areas. But, um, but anyway, that was me in 2015. I, am I? I guess I'm pretty similar to that. I, I guess I could agree with most of what I wrote in 2015. Not too bad. Not too shabby. Um, that's the approach that I take on this, and, and that's the approach that that I've had consistently for years. And, and it's not a matter of trying to just toot my own horn to say everyone should have listened to me or something. I'm just bringing it up to say. To, to highlight where were our leaders in the church and in evangelical institutions? Where were our leaders? They were promoting policies that harmed families, that harmed communities. They didn't seem to care about those things. They cared. What did they care about? They cared, in, according to their own words, they cared about the people who were in these war-torn areas trying to escape. And not just war-torn areas, because they were coming from all over, but uh, they, that's who they cared about. But um, th there's also evidence to suggest that maybe some of them cared about money. Uh, maybe some of them were, and it's true that many of them were getting organizations actually like World Vision were getting money for refugee resettlement. It's a business. So it's a policy that actually helps them. Um, but, you know, where, where were there, 
this is a this is concerning the order um adora if i'm pronouncing it right amores which we talked about yesterday the order of loves that augustine talked about the order of loves that's what this is concerning if we have our order of loves correctly we love the people around us in our families and then it extends outward to our communities our regions our country if we love people in that way our church of course is is very close in this that's one of the the main factors uh if if we love those people uh the people around us first and then the people who uh are distant from us we we still Love them like people in Nigeria are distant from me, but I still want to support them, right? But not it's not going to be the same as me supporting my own family members or people of my own local church body. If we have that right, I don't think we would have gotten as out of whack as we did in 2015, 2016. And unfortunately, this default, emotive, non-thinking approach to immigration, refugee crisis is still the default setting I think Christians have. It's still their default setting. They're they're unable, the, the leaders who led us down this path, to look in the mirror and say, hey, this didn't work out so well. <laughs> I haven't even talked about Germany or Sweden or any of these countries, Norway, uh, that brought in immigrants and then really have had problems. I mean, there's I, I'm not showing you any of the videos, but there's a lot of them. Uh, Germans who can't go to, they can't even wander to places that have been in their families for generations because it's not safe. It's just not safe. Uh, the escalation in, in rape victims in places like Germany is, is incredible. I mean, it is uh, it is unheard of what's going on. I mean, uh, Ireland's about to lose their identity. I think it was at, at Belfast, I think it was. Um, I think it was Belfast. I just saw recently the number one name in Belfast is Mohammed now for babies. Um, they're they're going to lose whatever. I mean, forget about the um, <laughs> the troubles, right, which were bad enough. Uh, that, that, that's going to be, you're, you're, people are going to be looking, longing for that, that time period, perhaps. I know people living through that might say, I don't know if I'd ever long for that. Well, if you let this go long enough, if you take in so many people from a different religion, uh, a totally different culture, and they're not assimilating, you bet you're going to have civil strife and it's going to be, it's not going to be pretty. Uh, and that's part of loving your neighbor is taking that into account. It's loving the neighbor who's next to you, who's in your neighborhood. That's why we have neighborhoods. All right. Well, that is uh, the podcast for today. I figured I would just take a moment to share with you uh, about the that situation happening in France uh, to the comment section now. Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> Jimmy Starfish says, Jesus did not command us to love all 8 billion people in the world in the exact same way. You're such a hater, Jimmy. You are such or jammy. Sorry, jammy. You're such a hater. <laughs> um, uh, Montana Viking says, I do think David Platt has taken in many kids as his own as the family struggled with infertility. Still no excuses for social justice warrior stuff. Hey, that's good. I didn't know that. Um, so, you know, I don't, does that color my view of David Platt uh, on this topic? Not one bit. <laughs> He's wrong to guilt Christians like that. And, and, and I forgot to say something, by the way, this whole idea that Christians are thinking too politically about this and not biblically enough. Like, like the biblical principles in this are pretty simple. Like love your neighbor is, is a pretty, it's a general principle, right? And so who is your neighbor is the question you ask. And of course, proximity has something to do with this. Uh, and then it's what's going to inform your decision. Well, your decision on policy is going to be informed by whether this is loving to your neighbor, to the people in your you know, neighborhood, in your country. Uh, is it going to be beneficial? Is Are these people that you're bringing in, are they going to be threats? 
Uh, can we vet them? Are they going to benefit the country? In fact, um, people like to cite, uh, is it uh, James Madison, one of the founding fathers, uh, often called the uh, father of the Constitution. Uh, they, they often like to cite him as advocating for mass immigration and so forth. And if you look at what he actually said, it was basically like, we should bring in immigrants who help America, who benefit America, right? And he's the one who's supposedly the more pro-immigrant guy. Uh, in our that, that that's just shows you how much things have changed. But no, Platt is wrong on this. Uh, Christians do need to think in political categories as well as the personal categories. Yeah, as a church, if it's happening and you don't have any control over it, especially, yeah, you meet the challenge as a church, as a family, as a person, as a Christian. But that's a separate question from what should our policy and our stance be. So anyway, um, let's see. Lots of comments here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Charles E. Monaghan says, uh, I think you need to be logged into Twitter to look at anything now. Annoying enough. All right. uh, annoying enough. Yeah, I, I've noticed that. Like, if you want to get like news on what's happening in France, for example, it, you go onto Twitter and you see here are the videos being posted in real time like that. It's funny how that's the default now, isn't it? For a lot of people, they, they're not going to CNN. They're actually going to Twitter. Um. France is in shambles. Yes, Montana Viking is correct about that. Uh, okay, so, um, well, let's. Uh, oh, this is totally unrelated. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go for it though. Uh, Jamie Starfish also asked, "Did anyone go see the Sound of Freedom movie yet?" Uh, there is, and he's hesitant, I guess, because Angel Studios is a more Mormon organization. I'll just say this: I don't know a lot about it. I haven't seen it yet. Go to Truth Scripts, TruthScripts.com. There is a review there of the movie encouraging people to see it and um apparently this was made by another outfit and i think it was made like five years ago and it got picked up by angel studios i think because of the, the, some problems with showing it um so I, I don't know you know i don't i don't think the more there's any mormonism in it from my understanding all right well that is the podcast for today hope that was helpful to all of you god bless more coming bye now